The Comics Course is an offering of the lectures from Miskatonic University's Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, offered as a publicly available podcast. And from John, welcome back to the Comics Course. I am, as always, your indomitable Professor Hamby, here with my inconsistent T.A. Rowan. Oh, how are you doing, Rowan? I'm doing good. You mean well? Well, yes. <laughs> there. It, no, it's improper grammar. You're an art major. I know you don't understand this. Words are hard. Whatever. I know. Whatever. So, it's been a while since we've recorded. Things have been crazy. We got through the intramurals with minimal damage to the buildings. Mm-hmm. I think only one faculty um, is still being searched for. Nice. That's a good improvement from last year. Yep. And we're finally back uh, to talk about Sandman, the Kindly Ones. And I have to admit, I have not been eager to do this because you and I have talked about this, and I've said this to others, but even though Morpheus is kind of a silly emo git, he's our silly emo git at this point. Exactly. We've been through so much. And, you know, I have to admit, when I first read this, when it was first published, Mm -hmm. you know, I was like, well, I mean, Morpheus isn't going to die. I mean, there's going to be some sort of solution to this. No. 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 (sighs) And you have to wonder, what were the discussions between Neil Gaiman and DC like at this point? I mean, he must have basically said... I'm done with this, and we're concluding the series, and I have legal ownership over this character, so you can't stop me. Because no comic book company has ever willingly killed off a character that was printing money for them. But here we are. But here we are, exactly. If there's a little weird flapping noise, I apologize, but we are heading quickly towards June, and it's starting to get a little humid here at Miskatonic. So, I am using a scholarly journal to fan myself, because they have started rationing my electricity, I think in hopes that I will eventually move out of my office. Little do they know that they pay me so little that my motivation to avoid paying rent somewhere is still very high. Unfortunately. And I do not believe that this pandemic is over yet. So, I'm staying put. Now, as we get to the dedications for this part, uh, they mentioned Cupid, and that made me think of, ironically, something literary-related in pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I was listening to recent K-pop releases recently, and I will keep this side journey short, I promise, uh, those listening to the lecture, but a Korean group... Uh, 50-50? No, um... La Seraphim. Oh. Or, I, I think, officially they're supposed to be called La Seraphim, but even the members of the group say La Seraphim, as I understand it. Yes. And they have a song out called Eve, Psyche, and Bluebeard's Wife. Mm-hmm. And this has literary antecedents. There is a line in it that one of the members uh, repeats Mm -hmm. of, I want what's forbidden. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, those three figures are all from either mythology or folk tales Mm -hmm. of seeking out something forbidden. Mm -hmm. Eve, of course, is well known from Christian mythology. I know some of you are Christian and you get offended when rational people call your set of magical beliefs mythologies. But they are. Get over it. That doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that for those of us that don't believe in magic, we look at you in the same way as when pagans start chanting about worshipping Idun. Mm -hmm. uh, Or claiming that by scraping the bark off certain trees that they'll become immortal. No, they just have really weird visions and then spend the morning throwing up and wondering why they're naked and covered in mud. (laughs) If you want proof that Christianity is no more uh, uh, rational in its uh, mystical beliefs than any other religion, simply look at the fact that the central traditional practice of Christianity involves the drinking of blood in a public ritual. (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't know what I mean by that, the technical term is the transubstantiation. Um, And it's not just the drinking of blood, the eating of flesh. Basically, Christians are zombies. In more ways than one. (laughs) This was the Jesus thing. Yep. So, Eve, of course, is well known in uh, Christian literature for being the figure that prompts both herself and Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge. Because as we all know, women are the root of all evil. And she goes to do something that's forbidden. Mm -hmm. But this song isn't about being the root of evil. Mm -hmm. Because if they had, there are figures other than Psyche they would have included. I mean, Pandora would have been a more logical choice. Yeah. But are you familiar with the myth of Psyche? Actually, no. I didn't really... I knew of it, but I don't know it really in detail. So in Greek mythology, Psyche was an extraordinarily beautiful woman. And depending on the version of the myth that you hear, because this is an oral tradition of mythology, then either people were comparing her to Aphrodite or saying she was more beautiful than Aphrodite. The goddess of beauty. And if there's one, th- if there are two things clear in Greek mythology, it's one that Zeus will shag anything that moves, and that Aphrodite is a jealous bitch. Honestly, almost all the women in Greek mythology were. Aphrodite's especially bad. I mean, True. her and what was her name? Zeus's wife. Hera. Yeah, her and Hera were. My God. Well, Hera transferred her anger to Zeus on the women because she couldn't touch him. Yeah. Which isn't healthy. Yeah. But Aphrodite, there's many myths about Aphrodite basically torturing women because people found them beautiful. Yeah. I mean, not good. No. So in the mythology, uh, Aphrodite sends her son Cupid to go do stuff. And he accidentally pricks himself in Psyche with one of his magic arrows And so, Psyche falls in love with him, and him with her. And a whole bunch of stuff happens, but without going into all the details of the myth, myth, 
these essential focus of it is is that she is seeking out to have a relationship with her husband Cupid, mm-hmm. who let, let's go ahead if you folks are familiar with Cupid from all the little cutesy like baby stuff. That's not his representation in Greek mythology. Not He's an adult ass man. Yeah. Um, it, that came from like a weird merger of the cherubims in Christian mythology then adopting the persona of Cupid in this weird um, mashup of Christian and Greek lore. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, for many, many centuries, of course, Greek lore was considered the foundation of Western culture, including by Christian scholars. So this is not surprising it happened. Anyway, but she wanted Cupid, a god, and that was forbidden by Aphrodite. Uh, and ultimately, the story is resolved when Zeus finally says, stop it, Aphrodite, you can't mess with her anymore. Uh-huh. Although he only does it because Cupid agrees to be his wingman and makes the next woman that Zeus is interested in fall in love with him. <laughs> because Zeus has a one-track mind. Well, yeah. And, and I wouldn't blame Zeus for it if A, Hera was okay with it, and B, he gave a damn about consent. Um, Consent is a big problem in the Greek mythology universe. Well, in most of human history, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And then Bluebeard's wife, I think most people know, at least the rough fragments of, but Bluebeard's seventh wife, who I think her name was Adrienne or something like that. Something like that. Which, by the way, has its roots in a Greek name that involves another figure that was punished by another Greek goddess for being... Described as similar to the a goddess. <laughs> bitches be jealous. Right. Bitches be jealous. Greek god bitches be jealous. <laughs> and, of course, Bluebeard's wife wants to know what secrets are being hidden from her. So, it's a whole song that thematically is based on women being defined and told what to do. All this said, objectively speaking, it's not a great song. Mm-hmm. Mediocre at best. Mm-hmm. But it is catchy as hell. I will give it that. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting little pop culture bit to look at in terms of literature before we jump into The Kindly Ones. Now, The Kindly Ones is a euphemism used for the Furies, the Fates, mm-hmm. because they don't like to be called the Furies. Mm-hmm. That's explained in the story. There is a big mystery left behind at the end of this, which we'll talk about at the end. And I will briefly read to you the, ded- the uh, lead-in quotes and dedications. The first is from Beaumont and Fletcher, Cupid's Revenge, 1612. It was reading this that made me think of Cupid and Psyche and the song. Mm-hmm. Quote, The fool that willingly provokes a woman has made himself another evil angel in a new hell to which all other torments are but a mere pastime. Wow. Joy. Somebody has feelings about what happens when you piss off women. Yeah. (laughs) Then from John Webster's The White Devil, 1612, same year. What do the dead do, uncle? Do they eat, hear music, go a-hunting, and be merry as we that live? No, because they sleep. Lord, Lord, 
that I were dead, I have not slept these six nights. So this is about dying and sleeping and non-existence. The dedication for the three witches, fates, norns, and graces of Sandman, the three weird sisters who have midwife Sandman nurtured it and issue by issue put it to bed. This book is for Shelley Roberg, Elisa Kowitney, and above all, Sandman's fairy godmother, Karen Berger. With gratitude, Neil Gaiman. And, of course, the three women, the three wise women, they do show up throughout mythology. And Gaiman is certainly not the first person to observe that the three Norns of Norse mythology bear many similarities to the three fates of Greek mythology. Um, and as we've discovered in the late 20th and early 21st century, there was more communication between those parts of the world than we have historically assumed. So we're going to go through bit by bit, and I will try not to simply reiterate the chapters, but I do want to point out this gorgeous cover art from Dave McKean, which shows off these representations of the three fates. Now, the writing of the Kindly Ones is done in the format of a Greek tragedy. And, of course, it's a tragedy, so the hero, in this case Morpheus, dies at the end. Now, are you familiar with the concept of a Greek chorus? I've heard of it. I don't actually know what it is, but I've heard it talked about a lot, if that makes sense. Well, in Greek plays, they had something called a chorus up front. They didn't call it a Greek chorus because they were Greek. Um, which brings to mind another thought that I'm going to suppress about the use of the term Greek as an adjective. We're going to skip that. Suffice it to say the Greeks can be weird. Anyway, the Greek chorus were not players in the play, but they would yell out things to the audience in song. And... They would often provide both background information and exposition. Mm -hmm. So they might be like, yo, you know, at the very beginning of a play, oh, ye crowd who are here, behold, wandering the desert, the son of Theseus, king of Thebes, and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then you see a guy wander onto the stage, and you kind of have the scene set for you. But they might also provide exposition and commentary like, Whoa, isn't Theseus a dumbass who has done these things you've seen him do in Act One? Mm. <laughs> so here, the fates act as the Greek chorus of this story, mm-hmm. providing commentary and exposition to us, the reader. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we open with the fates because every Greek tragedy opens with the Greek chorus. And here we see sort of modern incarnations of the three, Clotho, uh, Atropos, and Lachis, and they look like modern people Mm -hmm. and are sitting around spinning. Now, do you know what the significance of spinning in Greek mythology for the fates was? No. So there are three of them. Uh, Clotho, Clotho, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, is the youngest, and she would spin the yarn. Mm -hmm. And then Lachis was the sort of middle-aged one, 
And she would knit something from the yarn. And then Atropos, the eldest, the, the hag, the crone, and she would cut the thread, finishing it. And they would create, collaboratively, a skein. Now, in this case, the skein looks like it could be a pair of boots, middens, a sweater, whatever. But what each of them represents is a human life. They literally were the fates in the sense of Clotho creates the new mortal life and soul. Lachis sets in motion the pattern it will follow in life. And then Atropos decides when to cut it, thus ending their life. And so they were literally the fates of man in that regard. They, they determined everybody's life. And without directly referencing that, but just referencing that they're knitting something here, they are playing into that aspect of mythology. There's also gross discussion about eating a mouse. Gross. Yep. And, of course, at the final panel of the Three Fates as the Greek chorus, Atropos looks at this thing that Lachis is creating and says, All good things, eh? All good things. Got to finish sometime. And she just unceremoniously cuts the thread. And, of course, this represents... The life of Morpheus. Maybe. There's another life it may represent. And that's another thing that I think people debate sometimes. Because one of them does say this is a small thing that's been made. It could be a bit longer. So maybe it's a very young life ending. So that leads us into the next few pages where Lyda Hall discovers in her son Daniel's bed, and of course we've talked about Daniel previously, his father was a ghost, just stated in, the, in a dream realm, and Daniel hasn't been outside, but still manages to have a bunch of sand in his bed. Because the boy wanders off into the dreaming. Because this is why you should have children in one, not in dreams, just not dreams. Right. Or any weird, separate pocket dimensions. Yep. But she doesn't know that he's doing this. Now, outside on the street, this old guy's trying to be nice. He seems a little lost in the head, a little crazy. He tries to offer a flower to Daniel, and Lyda loses it. She just flips out on the guy and, until he's crying on the ground. What the fuck? He was just trying to offer the kiddo a flower. I mean, Lyda is clearly not all there. Events have left her traumatized, and we would now call her a helicopter parent, except helicopter with a healthy side dose of pure psychosis yeah. and PTSD and other trauma. Mm -hmm. And her background is pretty messed up anyway. Now, in her original incarnation as a member of Infinity Incorporated, and the superhero side of the DC mm -hmm. universe, uh, her mother was the Silver Age Wonder Woman. But then after Crisis on Infinite Earths, Wonder Woman was a contemporary figure, not a World War II figure. So they retconned that the role Superwoman played in World War II and Earth II was by a figure named Fury. Mm -hmm. And that Lyda was the daughter of Fury. 
And Fury, however, they kept having a connection to Greek mythology, except instead of being given powers from being a golem, people forget this, Wonder Woman was shaped from clay yeah. on Themyscira. So she was basically a homoculi. Yeah. Although, at least in one iteration of the DC Universe, that was retconned, and Zeus actually banged her mom, and they made up the clay story so that Hera wouldn't destroy the island. That's gross. I'm glad they made up the clay story. Yeah, and I don't know if that's still true in the DC, because that might have been three reboots of the universe ago. Mm -hmm. I've lost track of that shit. Um, nor care, really. No offense, but everyone with lives have lost track. Yeah, yeah. And, wait a minute, why would that offend me? I didn't say it would offend you. Oh, to the listeners. Yeah. They're, they're not listening to this. They're too busy arguing on Reddit about Daisy Ridley being in a new Star Wars film. Oh, probably. Which, which has been confirmed, unless they cancel it like all the other projects. All I can say is the sequel trilogy was a mess, but people who are upset about the an actress for what the writers and producers did, get over it. But people want something simple. They want someone to be mad at. A face thing, though. So it's, for people, it's easier to get mad at the actors than the writers. They need to be mad at the producers. I mean, if either Ryan Johnson... Or J.J. Abrams had done the whole trilogy, some people would be mad and some people would be happy. But the way the producers did it, flip-flopping them, just made sure nobody would be happy. But that's a producer's choice. They're the ones really at fault. Anyway. But that's how movie studios work. And they get to be mad at a woman this way. Which is a factor for some of them. Uh, it's probably, sadly, true. Um... Even though I suspect she had about as much influence on the script as I do. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, Lyda, they're definitely playing up this idea of her having anger problems. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's coming from her side of being descended from the Furies indirectly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she goes in to eat. And we're left on this ominous thing where at the very end, if somebody says, if anyone hurt Daniel, I'd kill them. And she has crazy eyes. Crazy eyes! <laughs> uh, Mark Hempel is the artist for uh, this issue, and I think a, a fair chunk of the Kindly Ones. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of his art, but I don't know. What do you think of it? Eh, I'm not a big fan of it either. It's kind of boring, and it's weirdly detailed in places where I don't think it needs detail. And then places where it's really, like, abstract and moments where I feel like it'd be better if it had detail. Yeah, and the colors... I mean, his sort of style, I think, works best when you're very sparse with colors. And yet he puts lots of color in. Yeah, his style definitely, with the coloring, gives me the vibe that he's used to doing grayscale. Yeah, well, this is almost like pop art style coloring. Uh -huh. And it doesn't work with his art style, in my opinion. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we go to Morpheus's realm. Matthew is trying to find Morpheus. He hasn't seen him in a while. Something is up with Morpheus. There's a whole bunch of discussion about this. And he even goes to harass Lucian. Of course. 
and he goes to chat with Nuala, who is the elf. And we find out that Morpheus is out at a river somewhere, and he's making a new Corinthian. And he's using a little bit of the original Corinthian. So the new Corinthian has some of its memories, but it is a new entity. It is meant to be a dark mirror for humanity like the original Corinthian was. But hopefully this time not flawed. And when Morpheus gets tired of Matthew's questions, he just sends her away to Eve's cave. Mm -hmm. Sends him away to Eve's cave. Meanwhile, we finally see Lita in a very tight little black dress has finally accepted a interview for a job and to try to get out of the house some instead of just obsessively watching Matthew all the time. And she's going to Lux. Oh, no. The nightclub being run by Lucifer. Nothing good could happen. The jazz nightclub in L.A. run by Lucifer. And we see Mazikeen, who we haven't seen for ages, who's wandering around humanity with a half-mask, hiding the zombie decaying side of her body. Good for her. So she's with this guy who's kind of offering her a blank check for a job. She really doesn't need a job. She's actually independently wealthy. He gives us a little bit of exposition for the readers who aren't comic book geeks and don't know about her time with Infinity Inc. and the World War II character. And this is probably especially useful for people who hadn't followed all, in great subtlety, the reboot stuff after Crisis on Infinite Earths. And because they were for years after Crisis trying to sort out the continuity issues. They've given up at this point. Oh, no, they were still doing it at this point. But a few years after this, at some point, they had another reboot and then another and then another. And I think at this point, they just kind of have a policy of every two years rebooting the universe. Yeah. Each time with some new set of delusions that they're going to fix the problems. I think it's on a calendar somewhere in the office, and it's regularly emailed like a month in advance for writers to get their shit together in time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, what they actually need to do is accept that mythology is not a problem to be fixed. It just happens. Yeah. And you're going to have contradictions from different authors, and you just have to ignore it and move past it. There's some little side plots, things here that are kind of funny. I'm not going to get into them. But Lyda suddenly has a feeling of dread and is like, I have to go home now. They get home and she's having trouble with the door, so she just smashes it open. Making it clear she's lost none of her superhuman abilities over time, even though she's out of the superhero gig. And she comes in to find the apartment has been tossed and her son is gone. Oh, no. And this is where it gets ugly. Mm -hmm. Now, her friend is there with her and some cops show up and they identify themselves as Gordy Fellows and... Gordy Fellows is sort of a squat one. And the other guy, what does he call himself? Luke Pinkerton. Which, of course, Pinkerton detectives. Mm -hmm. 
And then Gordy Fellows. Think about that name. Does that sound at all familiar? No. Okay. What are you giving that look? We'll come back to it. Okay. And they're asking about the kid and all that stuff, and then they leave. Nothing particularly suspicious, although they don't seem very... Let's just say their bedside manner is not good. Eh, they're cops. What do you expect? Right. Oh, I will mention, by the way, the New Corinthian plays a part, a part in this plot line, uh, as does an event that's about to happen, and they both become very relevant in later Sandman-related series called The Dreaming Ooh. that actually was very well-written and lasted a good while. Does not involve Morpheus at all. Mm. But uh, focuses on other characters in the dreaming. Mm. Uh, Clericon has showed up in order to bring Nuwala back home to the ferry. Some weird shit happens, including him creating his own nemesis, because he does not stay on the main way. Yeah, it's weird. But, and... Completely unimportant to the rest of the plot here. Okay. But becomes important at future times, but not in the kindly ones. Okay. So, in the end, Nuala ends up returning to Fairy with Clericon, and she's clearly kind of upset that she has just been allowed to leave by Morpheus. Mm-hmm. Who, and she clearly wanted to stay. Well, yeah, you don't exactly want to go back to the people who sold you like a slave. Right. But it is her home. Mm -hmm. But she's clearly found a happier life there in the Dreaming. Mm -hmm. And in Morpheus's employ. And it quickly becomes clear she has personal feelings for Morpheus. Mm. Which is interesting. And... Morpheus is completely oblivious to it. Because, of course, when he gets fixated on a woman, that's one thing. But a woman gets fixated on him and he doesn't even notice. Yeah. Although, I do have to say, he has a lot of success with the women he gets fixated on. So Emo Boy must have some game when he wants it. (laughs) I mean, right? True, true. I mean, his list is pretty epic. True. Um, I mean, we're talking about princesses, queens of fairy... I mean, all kinds of entities. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we get to Lyda, who's dreaming, having some sort of vision, and she wanders downstairs to meet with the fates. And she asks questions, and they answer three questions from her, but she doesn't ask any useful questions. Because why would a side character ask something useful at this point? I wouldn't call Lyda a side character. I guess. I mean, she's a. I would. She's one of the two most important characters in this. Well, I mean, for a while she took a big backseat in the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't a main character of the other storylines, even when she showed up. But she's a main character of this story. True. I guess it's unfair to say she's a side character in this. I was more referring to the other stuff in the series. I mean, in Sandman, you really have to talk about each story arc as a separate work. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are story arcs where even Morpheus isn't a primary character. Such as with Distant Mirrors. Mm -hmm. So, 
she comes back. She doesn't think it was anything more than a dream. Nuala ends up leaving and being disappointed that Morpheus doesn't try to keep her. And the stage is set for two figures who are pulling a silver string. Now, this is a silver cord. There are schools, by the way, of mystical thought that believe in things like astral projection. Mm -hmm. And they believe a silver cord connects your soul or spirit to your body. And if it were to be cut, you would be lost in the astral realms and unable to return to the mortal world. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a reference to that. Yeah, probably. And we see two figures here. One is tall with an angular face, and he likes fire. And he doesn't tell us his name up front, but one of the figures says to the other, we'll both be up to our necks and shit, eh? And the guy says, I did that once. They made a saga about it. What? Many years ago, I convinced Thor of the Aesir that the reason for his impotence was that he was pregnant. Can you guess who that figure is now? Loki. Uh... Loki. I'm going to read this story just because I love it. And then we're going to talk about the other figure. So the other figure says, pregnant? Eh, he's not very bright. Remember the Thor we saw here in Sandman was not bright at all. He's not very bright. And I told him to lie face down and naked on his sleeping furs until I came and delivered him of child. He listened to you? I was wandering around disguised as a physician and he's not very bright. Exactly. So I fed him a gallon of castor oil painted his arse blue, and shoved a a cork in his bumble. Why? Because it amused me to do so. I told him it was a cure for his condition, and then I went off and slept with his wife. She wasn't much of a lay, but it amused me to know it would destroy him if he ever found out. So Thor is laying face down with a cork up his fundament for a week and a day, while his insides continue to rumble their course. And now... He's got a pain in his gut like you wouldn't believe, as the pressure continues to build. I told him he might experience some pain, that it was common in pregnancy. Suddenly, into the room, through an open window, bounds Ratatusk, the squirrel who lives in the branches of the world tree. Ratatusk is curious as any little squirrel. And There's he... squirrels everywhere, God damn it! I know! Sorry. <laughs> And he climbs on top of Thor's straining, squirming buttocks and pulls out the cork. It's an explosion. Eight days worth of oiled shit thunders forth from the fundament of the Lord of Storms. And the mighty Thor sits up, looks around, and sees Redditusk on the ground, stunned, gassed, and befouled. And slowly, with hands as big as ham hocks, he picks up the little animal and stares at it, and then with one ponderous motion, clasps it to his bosom. You're ugly, he says. You're hairy and you're covered in shit, but you're mine and I love you. (laughs) You know, that's all you can want out of a father. 
That's all you can want out of mythology. I don't know if that actually being from any of the uh, preserved uh, Norse tales. Maybe somebody listening who knows Norse mythology better than I can tell me. But I now want to promote the idea that it is, if it's not. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. Yep. So, they continue to pull on this cord. And the other figure is Robin Goodfellow. Now, we last saw Loki after the events of Season of Mists, when Morpheus put an illusion in his place, because he had put the Japanese thunder god there, storm god there, and doesn't put Loki back and tells Loki that he will owe him a favor. We last saw Robin Goodfellow avoiding going to ferry with the others at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And they're both trickster figures. Mm -hmm. And we see them pulling by that silver cord, Daniel. Mm -hmm. Who's carrying a feather of some kind with him. And they say, what's he got? It looks like a phoenix feather. They're lucky. For whom? Mm -hmm. And they take the child and they put him in the fire. Oh, no. Burn, baby, burn. Now... What was that police detective's name? Uh, Pinkman. Pinkerton was the tall, angular one. Uh-huh. Loki is certainly kind of tall and angular. Oh, no. The other one's name was Gordy Fellows. Oh. Good fellow. Oh, no. Robin Goodfellow. They returned to the scene of the crime. And are working up Lyda's nerves. Now remember, Lyda already doesn't like Morpheus, and Morpheus had already told Lyda he will return for Daniel one day. Someone got to him first. So, issue three of The Kindly Ones. We open with Hob Gadling, who we haven't seen in a while. And a loved one has died. And he's visiting their grave. And this theme of loss is consistent through the kindly ones. And he's dealing with the grief of having lost this person, as he's lost many others. And he makes it clear it's not becoming any easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, he loves these people, and just because he's lost lots of people doesn't mean losing another one has become any easier for him. And it's a lot of pain over an extended period of time. And then we see Destiny in his garden. And Destiny is running into himself in the garden. And it says, this was no surprise to him. It was written in his book that he would see himself. But it still gave him a chill to see him there. Now we know that when big that big things happening among the endless disturb destiny mm-hmm. as other things do not. Yeah. And we go to see desire who's closing herself off in her realm, closing her realm to other endless. Mm. So what does she know of what's happening? And we see that delirium is leaving her realm Trailing flying colorful fish behind her. 
not the weirdest thing. So Morpheus has a conversation with Hobgadling on the other end of these events. And it becomes clear that Morpheus is kind of saying goodbye to Hob. And, like, maybe Morpheus knows something is coming. Maybe. Meanwhile, Lyda is clearly headed into some sort of psychotic state. state. And when the guy who invited her out to Lux shows up, she just breaks his arm with no effort. Not even thinking about it. And she's catatonic. She's in shock. And just wandering around like a zombie. And then who shows up at her door? The cops. Definitely cops. And what do they show her? A burn, a photograph of a burn charred dead baby. Just what a mother wants to see every day. So she snaps. And it's true. I know exactly what I must do. And that is the first three issues of The Kindly Ones. So, we have interesting events going on. Now, ultimately, one of the questions that people come back to over and over and over when they talk about The Kindly Ones is, who is responsible for the events happening? Desire seems to know something is happening. And she certainly has been involved with events up till now. And it wouldn't be the first time she's tried getting Morpheus killed. Right. And she's, we know from uh, three Septembers and a January that she swore to bring the kindly ones down upon him one day after he humiliated her there. Yeah, there's clearly no love there. <laughs> and she fathered uh, Rose Walker's mother uh-huh. with Unity Kincaid. And... So, something's happening there. Is it because she really knows what's happening? Or does she just feel something happening? It's not clear. It's weird, because she's also shown herself to think she's smarter than she actually is. Right. Now, Lucifer uh, seems to have his nerves up when they were in the club, and he gets twitchy with a mortal. And we will see him again before this is over. But we also know that Lucifer, although he promised revenge on Morpheus, may have already gotten it by the events of Season of Miss. Yeah. And Lucifer gave up none of his power when he left hell. So he may simply be aware of things. Yeah, it's, un- shaping. it's unclear if he's still mad at Morpheus or not. Right. And... There's a lot of ifs. Now, one of the things that, of course, drives people nuts is Neil Gaiman has never clarified some of this at all. I expect nothing less from him. He actually said at one point, he started to write an intro where he to one of the collections, and he sat down to finally tell people who was responsible for what, and then just decided not to. I think the real answer is he doesn't even fucking know. He wants us to figure it out. See, I think he does know. I think he does know. Because <coughs> there are interesting little hints along the way. 
I mean, clearly, some people know things are happening. The question is, what is their involvement? Queen Titania is calling back Nuala. She gave her as a gift, but is still of her people. So she knows something's going to happen to Morpheus. Lucifer clearly knows something of what's going on. Um, oh, who am I thinking of? Uh, uh, Morpheus obviously knows something is coming. Desire clearly knows something is coming. So here are figures with a lot of power and influence in this supernatural realm. And they know something is afoot. And maybe have a hint of it. Now it may just be that they know that Morpheus killed Orpheus. So they know his time is... Now that doesn't automatically bring the kindly ones down upon him. But it does make it possible now. And we are going to see, in the second half of the Kindly Ones, how Lyda actually makes it happen. Now, of course, one possibility that I think is likely is that Desire is inflaming Lyda. Desire is enhancing her existent protectiveness, her desire for revenge, these things. Desire isn't just lust. That seems to be the aspect that desire is most interested in. But lust can have a number of aspects, potentially. Mm -hmm. Desire is not restricted to lust. Mm -hmm. um, and... But is that the case? I don't know. It's a big question. Mm -hmm. Very. And we've already run 45 minutes, so I think we will record next week the second half of The Kindly Ones. Works for me. Which means you poor sods out there will have to wait to learn more about the death of our emo git. Gonna miss him. Me too. I mean, a new Sandman takes over afterwards, a new Morpheus, but it's not the same. It can never be the same. And the new guy's not emo. That's a crime. I know. It's just a crime. You can't be more... I mean, they should have chosen a new name because you can't have Morpheus and not be emo. Uh-huh. That's... I mean, that's like somebody doing a Cure cover band and not dressing up with black mascara uh, like Robert Smith. Uh-huh. How are we going to have the emo cousin if there's no emo cousin? The emo's gone. They can't just kill the emo. Well, they did. But we still have the Overture series afterwards, which takes place before the beginning of the comic book series. Ooh. And I think we should cover it, too. We should. Yeah. We'll do it quickly in one episode, though. All right. Class is dismissed. Class is dismissed, but if you need to talk to the professor, listen on. My link tree is at l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash prof hamby. That is p-r-o-f-h-a-m-b-y. That has all the places that I post announcements at 
about new episodes, including the huge variety of podcasting services and YouTube that I drop them on. Additionally, I actually spend a little bit of personal time on a couple of networks, specifically Twitter, that's at Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y, and on Tumblr, where the blog is called simply Comics Course. And I also, for some of my more narrative cast episodes, also post the transcriptions or notes from my podcasts. I'll see you around, and if you want to contact me, DMs are always open.